Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The spirit of collaboration is built into the DNA of the cultural institutions in Nashville. There are 141 languages spoken in the public schools, and we have the largest Kurdish population in the country. That's Dr. Susan H. Edwards, Executive Director and CEO of the Frist Art Museum since 2004. Susan earned BA and MA degrees at the University of South Carolina and a PhD from the City University of New York Graduate Center. Prior to leading the Frist Art Museum, she held positions at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, Hunter College, and served as Executive Director at the Katona Museum of Art. She is a past board member of the Association of Art Museum Directors. In 2011, she was knighted with the rank of Chevalier dans l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the Republic of France. A widely respected expert in American art and photography, Susan has organized exhibitions, published, lectured, and taught at the college level in both subject areas. During her 17-year tenure at the Frist, she presented over 225 exhibitions and put Nashville on the map as a major center for the visual arts. She recently announced her intention to step down as the Frist celebrated its 20th anniversary. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Max. It's great to be with you. I am so glad to have you, and I have to start with a question. Earlier this year, you completed certification in intensive training in art crime at Sotheby's Institute of Art. So should we expect you're leaving the Frist to join the FBI? Well, probably not. However, I, I think it would be wise for the FBI to recruit some seasoned art historians because we have the skills and the expertise and the connections. I think that would be very valuable to them. Unfortunately, I'm a little long in the tooth. Art historian is a perfect cover, as you know. And I think I would be such a wonderful little mole, you know, that'd be great. I mean, who would recognize me? There are very few areas that are more hospitable for crime than the art world. It's unregulated. It has wildly fluctuating valuations. There's the easy transfer of goods across national boundaries. And there are a lot of, as you know, shady characters. What surprised you most in your training? Um, well, there were a couple of things I knew going into this, because I'd been looking into this for a couple of years, actually looking for that encore. I previously was sort of surprised to learn that art crime is the third most prevalent crime in the world. It's not just lovely pictures disappearing, but it includes the laundering of money acquired through arms and narcotics and other illicit criminal activities, such as plundering and poaching. But I did learn that 90% of all art crime victims never recover their stolen items, which I think would be good to have those art historians on board. The thing that really surprised me is that the repercussions for criminal activity are relatively mild, short prison terms, and there's just very little restitution, especially in the case of forgeries. That's kind of surprising to me. So crime pays, right? Yeah, crime pays. And did you find in the global market that the U.S. is a bit player or where do we rank around the world as a home for art theft and art crime in general? It looked to me like the U.S. was right up there, maybe because of language. I know more about what's going on in the U.S., but the U.S. leads the world in a lot of ways, like mass incarceration and you know other things that yeah, we're not, all not those... so proud of. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things we're proud of, Susan, is country music, which is, after all, the coin of the realm in Nashville in many ways. And I'm wondering how you have managed 
over these years to shoehorn the visual arts in the home of the Grand Old Opry? I absolutely love the music scene here. And it's more diverse than country. Many of the session players, recording studios, work in various genres from rock and rap to jazz and classical. But the visual arts are a tougher sell, or they were. Not so much because of the competition for leisure time, but because of traditions. And when I arrived in 2004, we didn't have a generation that we now have who've grown up at the forest. And because so many people have moved here from other communities where they have art museums, they assume that the forest is much older than it is. So they expect it. There's so much to go back and think about in the origins of the Frist. You're only the Frist's second director, and the building, which is glorious, is a renovated Art Deco post office dating to 1934, and it sits on land that Cherokee and Shawnee Native peoples and elders call their homeland. What I understand is that the initial idea of acquiring and converting this vacant post office required a lot of support, and by good fortune, the prior postmaster general, Marvin Runyon, was a Nashvillian who championed the idea. So let me ask you about the building, which you have managed to use in so many creative ways. What are some of the unique attributes of this former post office that are either challenging or serendipitous? Well, thank you for saying nice things about this building. I love it. It's absolutely gorgeous, as you know. And the building materials, the aluminum flourishes and the marble interior and exterior are just beautiful. And the craftsmanship, it's very solid and sturdy. In fact, we are the bomb shelter. But although the Frist Art Museum is only 20 years old, the building is 84. And like many of us who are aging, it has some faulty parts. The building was actually sold from the post office to Metro Nashville government. So we do not own this building, but we are bound by a triple net lease to take care of all the repairs. But they must meet the standards of the Historic Commission for a landmark building. It can be challenging. We did manage to get Wi-Fi throughout, which you would think would be very hard in this rock-solid building. But so far, we're not bursting at the seams and the gallery spaces are adequate for our attendance and community. It's just that they're little nips and tucks that require attention. But there's also stuff like an original letterbox. Is it for donations? It is. Well, we kept the theme of the post office and we still have a branch of the post office in this building. So it's like the Vatican. You can mail a postcard (laughs) from the Musee Vaticani, and you can do that from the Frist? Yes, and as a former stamp collector, it was a perfect job for me. How could I resist when I saw this building? Wow. Do you think our current Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, would have been as receptive to the idea? Mm, Well, I don't know that I can speak for him. I imagine he's pretty interested in anything that divests the post office of assets, but As you point out, this is a a public-private partnership. It really involved hundreds of people who were creating the national agenda of 21 ideas for the 21st century. So it was the Metro government and the Frist Foundation provided the funds to retrofit and repurpose this building for an art museum. That kind of collaboration, I think only Marvin Runyon could have, I mean, he, he was critical to this. But yeah. so, so was the leadership of this community and the citizens here. As you say, it involved political muscle. And some of our listeners may be surprised to learn that 
nearly all of Nashville's elected officials are publicly known as Democrats, and a Republican hasn't represented a significant portion of Nashville since 1874, which is true of a lot of southern cities in red states. How much intellectual and artistic freedom do you and your fellow museum directors have across the South? I have the utmost respect for my colleagues in the South and Southeast. They're all generous collaborators and advisors. And I actually, I have to say, close friends and a support group that we all relied on one, one another in this past year. I cannot really speak for others, but I will say that we at the Frist enjoy artistic freedom and the trust of our board of directors. But it's also important to earn the respect of your community. And the visual arts can be foreign to the general public, no matter how progressive the community is. So sometimes pushing the envelope has been really a matter of incremental exposure. I think over the years, we've earned the trust of people in the community. And so when we're a little out there, they give us a shot and give us a chance and come in and try on something new. And your recent exhibition on Rena Banerjee, the upcoming Kara Walker display, are examples of the way the first has provided a beacon of tolerance. You got there in 2004. How much has Nashville changed over these 17 years? Oh, wow. So it's grown exponentially, Max. And with that, the creative culture has diversified. So it's not just, you know, my job in the visual arts, but I mean, it's a fun place to live and a great place to visit. There's more than bachelorette parties here because there's a fashion week and, you know, the cuisine culture has grown exponentially. But we've always had film, but we have a film festival and comedy and design. For us, our vision statement is to change the way people see their world. So from the very beginning, we wanted to expose our guests to other cultures, religions, and different aesthetic values and to prompt conversations and to break down real or perceived barriers, especially those in our own community. But we wanted to demystify the unknown and the unfamiliar. And sometimes that's from another religion or another culture, but it's really important if we're going to prepare people for the future to really understand how we have to all get along. When and why did you change the name from Frist Center for the Visual Arts, which is how it was founded, to Frist Art Museum? Well, (laughs) it really began during a strategic planning process in 2017. And we learned that people in this community and visiting didn't know what we were. They looked at the outside and they thought maybe we're a senior citizen center or a place where they could come and do arts and crafts or it was a performing arts center. So we realized we needed to rebrand to clarify what was going on inside the building. So we engaged Pentagram to help us with the look of a new logo and came to consensus. But I will say when we changed our signage, we did keep everything from the first Center for the Visual Arts because as you and I both know in our field, the names are changing and they change back and another director can come in and just say no Let's go back to the original plan. And it was a great plan. The original thought of all these community leaders was that we wanted to have this visual arts center that was non-elitist, that didn't have the potential baggage of the word museum. And they wanted a place, a fellowship, where no prior knowledge was required. And 
would be a place of enjoyment and gathering for everyone. You know, that could happen sooner than we were expecting, because I think in the past year, we've really been challenged to think about our purpose, that we, we have to be relevant for our community. And that Center for the Visual Arts kind of says a lot. Susan, the word museum, as you mentioned, for some people seems to have baggage. I've even seen some museums that advertise themselves as more than an art museum, well, which, which I, I find I offensive. <laughs> so I wonder, I mean, art museums can be so many different things to so many different people. How did you address or overcome that? Well, actually, people responded to the name change really well locally. And of course, it was much easier for me when I'm going around the world trying to coerce or entice or um, beg and borrow art because I didn't have to explain what we were. So it, it really says a lot. And I think that over the years, the word museum has, in my mind, it's not a dirty word. And I love art museums and they made my life. It's not just what I do. It's kind of who I am. And so we didn't find that people didn't like it. They liked the shorthand and they could remember it. And people had a hard time. I mean, we were always called the wrong name, you know, by people who are local and in other places. So it was extremely well received. Right. Broadly, looking at the American landscape, there is a lot of questioning about what value museums bring today, the degree to which they're contested spaces for values, for perspectives about our current politics. Are you sensing in the field a retrenchment, a retraction from the premise of museums as collecting institutions, or in your case, Kunsthallen, that really are there to show art as opposed to being instrumental of every possible social purpose? Well, as you know, I'm stepping down. And so it may be a good time for new leadership who would address this in a more thoughtful way. I don't want to describe myself as a relic, although that may be true. But I truly believe in the work of art museums. If you're trying to be all things to everyone, you might end up not being anything. I think being true to our mission and what we stand for, that we can do this really well. I don't feel qualified to do a lot of other things, but that doesn't negate the fact that we love that this is a place of fellowship and that people find lots of reasons to be here. And um, I don't mind amenities in art museums that make a more comfortable visit, but we've seen things, the tide go one way and then go another. It's cyclical. Being a non-collecting institution, you've been able to shape your identity because you can be everything to everyone, whereas collecting institutions are often saddled with maybe subpar collections and trying to make a virtue of them. How have you dealt with that? And who do you think your peers are in the non-collecting institution realm? It's a very interesting question because, you know, some of the criticisms of our entrenched racism and so forth, while we're non-collecting, we do support those institutions. So we can be complicit and I acknowledge that. We also have the flexibility, as you point out, to always be pushing the envelope a little bit. We also do historical exhibitions, so it's all time periods, cultures and mediums, and we can be more nimble than a lot of institutions. We also depend largely on those institutions with deep collections who are happy to partner with us when they're closed or not to organize exhibitions. And some of the exhibitions seen at the Frist go home and have a new life at home. 
because we do encyclopedic, I don't know if that's a good word anymore, but you know, try to show the full range of creativity around the world and across time. Maybe some of our peers are collecting institutions and not necessarily non-collecting. Have I dodged that well? Did I get out of that? <laughs> well, we could start by calling you a Wikipedian art museum if you prefer. Oh, please, Max. If please. encyclopedia connotes a tarnished realm of yeah. authority, Wikipedia well, is the authors or the people. So maybe that's where you want to be. You maybe, can be the first maybe Wikipedian. So. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> the interesting thing today in how museums are being used by the public is for the most part, there's energy around temporary experiences, installations, projections, pumpkins, mirror rooms, rain rooms. And so you may be onto something. I fear for collecting institutions that their permanent galleries during and post COVID are going to be empty spaces. I hate to hear that, but I know that we live in a speeded up culture where it changes the constant. Every seven weeks, we're a completely different institution. My colleagues in collecting institutions have a lot of challenges right now because they have to decide what they're going to do with those basements of, as you say, subpar objects and so forth. So it's a sea change. And it's funny because the press often assumes that museums are hoarding treasures that are being trapped and they need to let them free. And in fact, as we both know, most museum storerooms are a mixture of works that are of fragile fugitive media and works that really aren't deserving of being on the floor. One of the first lessons I learned at the Brooklyn Museum is that early on, people were accepting pretty much everything. And then you end up with an enormous amount by one artist. And by sharing that and redistributing some of that, it could create another whole museum somewhere else. Because I'm non-collecting, I loathe to weigh in too heavily on what other people should do under the circumstances. But as a museum goer, I actually sort of love those empty galleries because then I have them with a lot of time and space. Yeah, but you can go in before the museum is open anyway, so. Even in retirement? Even in retirement, you're going to have that (laughs) fancy AMD card. Okay. Now, Susan, you haven't finished your work yet, and you've engaged the interest of almost every imaginable institutional partner in the region. I stopped counting on your website at 60 organizations. (laughs) I'm wondering how you've managed to keep the old guard in Nashville loyal and supportive while you're also attracting participation by every conceivable charity, community center, and organization? Well, they're not really mutually exclusive. In Nashville, the major philanthropic families, the Turner Ingrams for us, we call it the TIF money here, are really devoted to this community and the quality of life here. They've all been courted by major cultural institutions around the country, but they elected to invest in Nashville They're all progressive thinking people who believe in the full potential of this community. I wish I could take credit for any of what you're talking about, but the spirit of collaboration is built into the DNA of the cultural institutions in Nashville. There are 141 languages spoken in the public schools, and we have the largest Kurdish population in the country. And as you well know, throughout the South, the African-American influence on our culture is palpable, and we're richer for it. No one who is on the funding side here is really threatened by the growth and change of Nashville. So I'm kind of lucky that way, I guess. You're a very cosmopolitan person, Susan. And I'm wondering how you have threaded the needle between being a highly educated sophisticate 
and steering an institution identified as, quote, family friendly, which I will admit is a phrase I don't care for because I think children need art museums to provoke new thinking instead of offering comforting fare. But how have you struck that balance? Well, I hope that family-friendly is not necessarily the Disneyfication of content, but rather felt in our institutional commitments, such as free admission for everyone 18 years old and younger, having adequate changing rooms and spaces for nursing mothers. But also, I hope that the proper signage when content requires discretion. We do allow anyone who wants to to preview an exhibition before bringing their children in to be sure that they're prepared to either explain difficult issues or to have brave conversations. I agree with you, Max. I think we need to challenge ourselves at every stage in life, not just childhood. But it wouldn't be very much fun for any of us if we didn't come away with something we didn't walk in the door with. You know, you remind me in Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario, we had a Warhol exhibition and in the show was a video of a scene of simulated fellatio. And a member of the public complained at the front desk and said she was going to call the police. And I naively didn't recognize that with the lack of a First Amendment in Canada, the museum could actually be shut down. So I was instructed by my government affairs person to leave the premises in order that I wouldn't be able to shut the museum down. Wow. But I think we take for granted a certain set of freedoms in the United States, and yet they're under assault, obviously, as with the curriculum assault happening with the, quote, anti-critical race theory nonsense deploying itself. Museum directing has been very affected by the broad social awakening to racial injustice. And how do you think the field is both adapting and going to adapt? 2020 was especially hard for all of us. And in Nashville, we began with the impact of Kobe Bryant's death. But we had a tornado here in early March, and then COVID, and then the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey last summer. It really was uh, a game changer here. And you may know on December 25th, we had a bombing. So it was just a, a brutal year. But, you know, sometimes out of all that adversity, we really got nose to the grindstone and when little was predictable, we hired a consultant and began a deeper dive into our relationship with the community and especially issues around implicit bias and racism. And we wanted to create a, a written plan because a lot of our efforts really hadn't moved the needle very much for us. So we did work with the consultants to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews internally and externally and conduct community workshops and training for board and staff. And we ultimately came up with a three-year written plan. So there's a timeline and not unlike a strategic plan with measurable goals and timeline and cost of doing that. But we really gained a better understanding of how we're perceived in our community and the work we need to do internally and externally. And along the way, we made a lot of new friends and we found that people were really very candid, but also ready to help us and advise us. And I think the work is essential for all of us if we want to be relevant in the future. You know, we have to be able to accept the criticism and not be too fragile around a new way of telling the truth. We cannot get to reconciliation if we don't tell the truth and have brave conversations. And with those types of reckonings and rethinkings, do you think museum directors of art museums need to have a degree in art history anymore? Again, I might make it out the door before. I, I, I do. 
I could not have had the life I have. And I, I think one of the things is that art history is not just memorizing names, dates, and artists, or even theoretical ways of looking at art, but you also learn to think. I think critical thinking and problem solving and even back to provenance research. I mean, we're we're curious people. And um, I think we have the best foundation for the problem solving. I mean, many of us have experience in the business world. I mean, some of the best directors really empower their creative teams and they have better business management. I've loved my career. I've loved every moment of it. And I attribute that to working in a field where I identify. And I think that my ability to talk to someone about antiquities and then in 20 minutes talk about Kara Walker and then 20 minutes later talk to the head of the finance committee about forecasting. I think it's speed. I mean, how quickly can you go from topic to topic? And the more well-grounded you are in your foundational information, I think more quickly you can change subjects when it's necessary. Well, I agree. And also for the search committees out there, including that of the Frist, I hope they understand that it's a much easier ask if someone is informed about the history of art to make a case for their institution, to make a case for their programs and their activities and the educational outcomes. So that's my bias as well, Susan. Well, well I, I, I agree. Thank you, Max. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about your plans after you step away from the first? Well, there's never a good time to leave a job you love or people have been kind and welcoming. I do think it's a good time for the for us to identify the next generation of leadership. I know I'll always find a way to give, so I would say that's pretty open-ended, but I'll probably relocate further east, and um, maybe if anyone from the FBI is listening, mm-hmm. they'll raise the age limit on new recruits. So. What about the criminal element? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I actually, uh, when we had the Picasso exhibition earlier this year, I was a nervous wreck when Netflix was broadcasting This is a Robbery because right. I thought they're going to look at the fact that I've been taking this course and looking into provenance research. And uh, mm. I, you know, I'm a prime suspect now yeah. and not in the uh, Inspector Tennyson way. Susan, you're a prime suspect for a very accomplished museum director who has made an impact in the field in more than one institution. I'm really grateful to have had the chance to talk to you today. Max, it's always a pleasure. I, um, you've been a, a great friend for a long time, and I thank you for all you've done for me professionally and as, as a dear friend. We've been speaking today with Dr. Susan H. Edwards, Executive Director and CEO of the Frist Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.